0: The world is still at odds with Jesus, but not us. He's our Savior, He's our Lord, and He's our soon coming King. All of the inequity in the world, all of the difficulty that we see, all of the sinful behavior that just seems to continue and continue and continue, to which the world has no answer. The Lord Jesus, in fact, is the answer. And He came that we might have life, and that life abundantly. Amen? As you turn to Luke chapter 11, picking up in verse 29. This morning, a study I've entitled, Sophisticated Slander. Kind of sounds almost like an oxymoron, doesn't it? But really, it is exactly how the world works. The world continues to make its arguments against the case for Jesus, who is the Christ. The only way, the only truth, the only life, and He is the one to whom the world has issue. He is the one that the world still debates and attempts to debauch. It is, in fact, Jesus that is the problem with all people who do not hold to Jesus being that way, truth, and life. They'll let you slide on God. They'll let you slide on religious activity. They'll let you slide on church. They'll let you slide in virtually every area of philosophical, religious activity. You can hold almost any view except the view that Jesus is the way and the truth and the life. And it is becoming more and more so the case. And in fact, in the public square, you can say almost anything except Jesus is Lord. You can shout any vulgarity that you choose to. You can demean Christians, in fact. You can use the Lord's name in vain. But don't dare to say that Jesus is in fact God's only Son. That somehow is becoming criminal activity. It's hate speech. And in fact, in our military right now, you can no longer pray in Jesus' name. And in fact, if you are an evangelical Christian, you are prohibited by an act of the Joint Chiefs of Staff of even talking about your faith During duty hours. It's illegal. It's considered hate speech. And Christians are considered a hate organization. If you happen to be someone like this church is. Who supports organizations like the Family Research Council. Maybe you attended a National Day of Prayer event. You are considered a terrorist In the way you function in our country in many circles. Family, it's still about Jesus. The court of public opinion is still in session. And Jesus is the debate point. And the slander is becoming more and more sophisticated. More and more hung on the will of the majority. My Bible says that in the last days, men's hearts will grow cold. That they will heap up for themselves teachers because they have itching ears. They want to hear someone agree with them. Jesus didn't agree with the religious elite and neither shall we. As we study his word. We're going to find that he was in disagreement with man's traditions from day one. We're going to find that Jesus himself was, in essence, against organized religion. He was for the lost. He was for making sure they are found. And so this morning, a long chunk of verses that I believe we can get through. The majority was wrong then, they're wrong today. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would fall upon us by your spirit, that you'd speak to us, Lord, that you'd instruct us, God, from your word. Lord Jesus, we thank you that in the days that these words were spoken, that that boldness that you proclaimed to the religious rulers of the day, now we can boldly proclaim to those that have awed with you this day. And so, God, we bless you. We ask that you would use this time, Lord, to instruct us, empower us, encourage us, and strengthen us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. And so it continues, picking up in verse 29. And while the crowds were thickly gathered together, and I want you to just stop there for a moment. You you see, that was really the issue. If you look at what happened in that day, the multitudes had one opinion and Jesus had another. That is still the case this day. The multitudes are trying to rewrite exactly what it is uh, that the Bible says about Jesus. And hard hearts are still hard to this day. And so I want to encourage you that not much has changed in the last couple of thousand years. And so he began to say to them, this is an evil generation. It seeks a sign. We live in an evil generation as well that I believe is ushering in the very last days, the days of the Antichrist. And people today are seeking a sign. Except they're doing it with the National Geographic Channel, intellectualism and again not against higher education it's an important facet of life we need Christian engineers and Christian doctors and Christian nurses and Christians in every profession Christian science not scientists as in the religion we need Christians in every facet of life we should be very intellectual but not at the expense of the gospel message and not at the expense of tossing out our faith so that we can simply be right with the majority. This is an evil generation. It seeks a sign, and no sign will be given except to them the sign of Jonah the prophet. For as Jonah became a sign to the Ninevites, so the Son of Man will be to this generation. I I checked the news wires this week, and there were three articles One on some camel bones that were found in a copper mine by the Dead Sea. Another on a specific scrap of text. And another one in a translation of a biblical manuscript that's been around for about 50 years. So three of them in one week. All of them said that they had disproved the Bible. And there are people flocking to that information. And it's absolutely absurd because it proves nothing. It's just simply an interpretation of of a couple of scraps of paper and some bones that were found inside of a copper mine. It doesn't prove that the Bible is wrong. It doesn't prove that Jesus never existed. It's based on some faulty, faulty scientific reasoning. But mankind still is clinging to It's amazing. I looked at the number of hits on the Camel article. It exceeded five million. Five million hits. And the headline was... Archaeological discovery disproves the Bible. It tells you exactly how pointed that argument remains to this day. There has been a sign given. It's the empty tomb. It's the resurrected Christ. He's not there. He lives forevermore. And the queen of the south will rise up in judgment with the men of this generation and condemn them, for she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon, and indeed a greater than Solomon is here. He's speaking to the Pharisees specifically, a group of them members of the Sanhedrin, the religious ruling legal leadership. This is like the religious court of the day. They are the ones that pronounce sentence and will on Jesus as we get through Luke's gospel. Very learned, perhaps the most learned men on the planet at the time. Very intelligent, well-formulated arguments. But he says, you know what? There's somebody standing in your presence right here, right now, that has more wisdom than Solomon. The Jews revered Solomon. They almost worshipped Solomon. Because of his wisdom. Was he wise? Absolutely. But we'll get to the end of his life in a moment. He goes on to say in verse 32, And the men of Nineveh will rise up in the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and indeed a greater than Jonah is here. You see, from a very Jewish perspective, the Lord is making an argument that these gentlemen could understand. He's appealing to their intellect to some degree. He's causing them to be thinkers. It's one of the reasons I frequently use questions. It's to draw you in. It's to get you thinking. It's to get you engaged in the process of taking the information in and examining it for yourself. And so that is what Jesus begins to do here. And much like most unbelievers in that day, he gives them three very specific signs. And the first one is a convicted prophet. You want a sign? You got it. You got the sign of the prophet Jonah to begin with. And so he begins to talk about the life of Jonah in that way that they could compare it. Look, you're looking for a sign. You've already had them. The signs haven't been a problem. The miracles haven't been a problem. Moses wasn't the problem. The law wasn't the problem. What I did in Galilee was not the problem. The problem is you refuse to believe in spite of the evidence that's been presented to you. Because it's not an issue of evidence. Emily of God, when someone comes to you and they say to you, Well, I don't believe in this whole Jesus thing because I've never seen them, it's the most absurd argument on the face of the earth. Because ninety nine, nine tenths percent of everything that you claim to believe you've never seen. Amen? Think about it for a second. What one of you have ever seen any historical figure mentioned past 50 years ago? Not one of you. There isn't a person here who has any historical understanding in the first person. And yet you believe it sight unseen. How many of you believe that your doctor actually has medical knowledge that came from studying? Well, maybe not so much. <laughs> and yet you go to the doctor. Virtually everything you believe, you believe without empirical evidence. Amen? But what about the evidence that does exist? Jesus is standing right in front of him. There are thousands of witnesses to the fact that he had done every single miracle that was given to him to do. They were roaming around the countryside. They were everywhere. And now let me modernize it. That's you. Your lives transformed by the hearing of the Word of God. The acceptance of Christ as Savior has made you into something you were not. You are living miracles. And so am I. So is the church. So is the fact that after 2,000 years, we continue to believe the same tenets of faith that were believed then, at the cost of your life at times. You see, Jesus was saying, come on guys, think this through. You believe all kinds of things. And so he begins to speak about Jonah And he does so this way, he's basically saying, look, the religious leaders don't believe anything. They don't even believe Jonah, and Jonah was sent as a way for you to understand. And we know the story of Jonah, amen? Can you imagine the witness that Jonah had? He is barfed up on a beach. He's covered with seaweed and goo. He has the gastric juices of some giant fish all over him, and he's walking into town going, look! I was wrong. You remember what happened to Nineveh? They repented instantaneously. The very thing that Jonah said he didn't want to have happen because they were so evil, the witness of what transformed his life spoke to them in such a way that the most evil people on earth at the time repented. said, you Jews all know this. It's contained in the canon of the Old Testament. You know the story. You didn't believe that one. How many days in the belly of the whale? Three. What happened to him? He got resurrected. I don't know about you, but I don't care whether it was a shark or, you know, we have the great... What kind of fish could it have been? I don't know. For all I know, it was a brachiosaur, and, you know, I don't know. I wasn't there. I know what my Bible says. And I know that there were hundreds of thousands, ultimately millions of Christians in that very area of the world, so much so that a genocide was pronounced on them. You know them by the name Arminians. That was the land of Jonah. They got saved. That was the land of the Ninevites. That's where he went. And they got saved and remained so that they were ultimately persecuted and killed by the hundreds of thousands. Second, the conscientious sovereign, the queen of Sheba. She came from a far off land to hear all that Solomon would speak. And they revered Solomon. He says, you know what? You guys put all this emphasis on wisdom. You're sitting around here debating the fine points of the law, and he's going to go on to cap on this uh, very, very pointedly. He said, Solomon's all right. But look at his life. Solomon was a tyrant. Solomon ended up an idolater. Wisdom without salvation gets you nowhere. You can be really, really, really intelligent and still perish. Give you a name or two. Stephen Hawking. Brilliant, brilliant astrophysicist. Lost. Perished. Denied Christ. You see, you can be really smart, really wise, and miss the point that salvation is free. It's a gift of God. You don't need a gigantic swollen brain to figure it all out. You need the faith of the grain of a mustard seed. And with that, you can be saved by believing in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so, though the Queen of Sheba came, she would one day denounce that very fact because remember, she came in faith. She got it. You're going to get the meter, I believe, one day. There's going to be another generation that's going to be raised up, and I believe on the Day of Judgment you're going to see all kinds of people there that you didn't think would make it. There's going to be people going, Jeff? Him? And you're going to be looking for some people that aren't going to be there too because they thought it was an intellectual exercise. You can talk somebody in, you can talk them out. Salvation comes by grace through faith, and not not of yourself. Amen? A third sign. There's a whole bunch of converted Ninevites. Think about it. And he says, there's one greater than Jonah. Jonah got it. You remember what happened? Pitch me over the side. I shouldn't be on this ship. Read that little tiny book. Just read it as a, as a continuous story. It's one of those that you can actually do that. You read the life of Jonah, it's like, what is it going to take? You know what his problem was? You remember what it was? He argued with God. Never a good idea. He argued with God. I am not, I'm not going. Have you ever been to the Ninevite cities? I mean, they're all going to hell. Every last one of them. They are wicked, vile people, and I'm not going. But Jonah, I want you to go minister to them. No, if I go, they'll get saved. Do you remember what he said? It's exactly what he said. If I go there, they'll repent and get saved. I'm not doing it. Not gonna happen. Not now, not ever. Okay. Matter of fact, I'm going the opposite direction. Parshish was the opposite direction. Never a good idea to go the opposite direction God tells you to go. Gets on the ship. He's having a nice little Mediterranean voyage. The steward comes by. Could I refresh your tea? I'm busy playing shuffleboard on the upper deck. The ship begins to be tossed. Look, it's Jonah. Huck him in the ocean. God always wins. If that's not bad enough, he gets sucked up by a fish. It's just like, look up Bad Day in the Dictionary. Jonah's life. <laughs> and then, bleh, right onto the beach. Alright, I'll go to Nineveh. Did God get sovereignly what he wanted? You better believe he did. Jonah eventually went. And people got saved. They repented by the thousands from Jonah's preaching. You get converted, you get convicted. Amen? So what happened to Jonah. You see, what they really needed was to just simply listen to the word of the Lord. God had already spoken. And so Jesus says, look, you've already had the signs. You've already heard the stories. That's so why when somebody comes, they say, well, you know, I just, uh, I, I don't know about this whole creation thing. I mean, a creator, I mean, come on. And I always say, well, I don't know about this Big Bang thing. Come on. You think nothing exploded and became something very organized. I just happen to think that somebody outside of space and time created everything. we see, I think my idea is more plausible than yours. He'll always have an argument. Because faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And you can't get saved without faith. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. And so Jesus is saying, look, guys, you need some faith here. Notice how he goes on now to give them a sermon. They wanted to sign. I love this. Because this is a clue for us in our daily walks. People will ask you, well, give me a sign. You know, Give me one empirical evidence that Jesus is real. Well, let me give you a sermon instead. Because sermons get people thinking. That's one of the reasons we go to church, is to take in the word of God, Have somebody like me maybe explain it in a way that you can kind of digest it a little bit. Maybe it doesn't quite make sense. You haven't studied Hebrew and Greek, and you haven't spent a couple of decades studying the Bible, so maybe I'm a little more gifted at that. I might be able to share something with you that would be a nugget. You go, aha, I got that. It's a sermon. We call it homiletics, the art of making something sensible out of words. 33, in verse 33, it says, No one... I love this. This is like the duh moment. (laughs) Okay. No one, when he's lit a lamp, puts it in a secret place or under a basket, but on a lampstand, that those who come in may see the light. That's kind of like, I don't know if you guys, do you have a flashlight drawer? We have a flashlight drawer. It's got like 85 flashlights in it, because you never replace a bulb. You just replace it, because they're like nine for ten bucks at Home Depot, so you just get enough. So you throw them in the drawer. And you go through them, and there's not one of them in there that works. (laughs) You have a power outage. You've got the wrong batteries, the wrong bulbs. There's no, you know, you can't take parts from one to the other. It's kind of like that. It was true then. You know, nobody's going to get a lamp, and then it's my little secret lamp, and I'm going to tuck it right in here because I don't want anybody to see it. And he goes on to explain it. The The lamp of the body is the eye. And therefore, when your eye is good, your whole body is also full of light. He says, basically, the things that you see, the things that you understand, when you begin to understand them, they translate into real life. And so the things that God has done in you have been made to translate into real life, not hidden under a bushel basket someplace, not tucked in a drawer somewhere to where it does no good. He says, but when your eye's bad... Your body's also full of darkness. He gives them a sermon. Bad religion had blinded them. Tradition had blinded them. They needed to walk in the light as He is in the light. They were walking in darkness. And it was by choice. They had the light. They'd seen the light. Jesus was the light. They said, ah, ah, don't want that. It's the weirdest thing in the world when you share the principles of salvation with people, and they reject it out of hand because they don't want the result, which is they're going to have to get saved. The gospel demands that. It's a choice which road you want to walk on. Light, darkness. Truth, lie. Saints, ain't. Saved, damned. Heaven, hell. You get the picture? The gospel demands that you make a choice. And it's a simple choice. Light or darkness? And what did Jesus go on to say? People loved the darkness more than the light. It's not that there isn't plenty of evidence. It's they love darkness. And so they take the lamp, they take the light, they stuff it someplace they can't find it, because they don't want to see A lamp is supposed to be lit so that you can see where you're going, what you're doing. It's not for lack of light. It's what men do with the lights. Why church is so important, folks? Trying to shed a little bit of light into our world. And when we gather together and get encouraged and study God's word and understand it a little better than we knew it last week, we go out into the world with some light. And you get to then share that light with other people. And as your mind is transformed and your life is renewed by the power of the Spirit, people have to choose what they do with that information. Well, there's something different about Chris. There's something very different about Daryl. Patty's been trans. There's something strange that's happened in her life. It's called light, and people look at, "Wow, what's wrong with you?" I got saved. I met you, really. Then he follows it up with an application. Check this out. You you, you see what he's really going to do is he says, "Therefore, take heed that the light which is in you is not in darkness." Don't put the light into some dark place. Put the light out there in the light. Make it more light. If then your whole body is full of light, verse 36 says, having no part dark. I love the way it's phrased, because that's exactly how it's phrased in the original language. Having no part of you as a person that could be assigned dark. You know that darkness is the absence of light, right? So no matter how much light you have, there's some light. The only way that you can have part dark is that you're dark. He's saying, basically, you're one or the other. Now, you may not intend that as a believer, and at times we all fail to do the things God asks us to do, but what he's saying is make a conscious effort to walk as light. Make sure you don't put up something over your head. You should not be under a bushel basket someplace. You should be visible to the world. Don't hide yourself behind education. Don't hide yourself behind intellect. Don't hide yourself behind your business enterprises. Don't hide yourself behind your money, your play toys, your relationships. Do not hide yourself. You're meant to be seen by the world. So that the world can love the light and love the Lord. The whole body will be full of light, and as when a bright shining of a lamp gives you light. Light's a wonderful, wonderful thing. When it's shining, it doesn't do any good to the person who can't see the light. You walk into a cavern someplace, I've been in lots of them, when they do that thing, every single cavern cave tour in the country does the same thing. Well, let's go in here and, oh, watch it. And the lights go off. And you're like, what? And you're reaching out and you're trying to feel for where everybody's at. There's always some junker like me who sneaks up behind you and, Sasquatch! You can't see a thing. But then inevitably somebody has a watch like mine that when you turn it the light goes on. It's very cool, by the way. My boys gave this to me. Doesn't if it sees any light, it's got a little sensor in it, doesn't do it during the daytime, only does it at night. So for me, I cheat. A little green glow, and it goes like a hundred feet into the cave. Alright, who's got the light? No, it's just my watch. But a little bit of light does that. It ruins the whole thing. The darkness is put away because of a little bit of light. Then all of a sudden they click the lights back on. You're like, oh man! Because your eyes have adapted to the darkness, yeah? And now all of a sudden it looks like somebody put on five million one of those spotlights you can get at Pep Boys. It's like you can see the moon. And so he begins now to bring this home to them. They were blinded. The light was there. They chose not to see it. They begin with some criticisms here. And notice as he spoke, certain Pharisee asked him to dine with him. And so he went in and sat down to eat. And when the Pharisee saw it, he marveled that he had not first washed before dinner. Horrors. What you just described is every male child between three and seventeen. Never wash before meals, ever. What's that on your hands? Well, it's swamp mud. You want to eat? I don't care. Just give me the food. Now, I'm not saying that's what Jesus did, but I mean, realistically, if your righteousness before God is determined by whether you washed your hands, we're all dead. I don't care how much hand sanitizer you use, there's some stuff on there, Okay. And so the Lord said to him, now you Pharisees make the outside of the cup and the dish clean. And when you travel to Israel, it's it's the craziest thing in the world. They have kosher kitchens and they have unkosher kitchens. And in fact, because you can't mix milk and meat, if for whatever reason you're drinking coffee and you happen to, like me, have contraband creamer, and you, it's illegal. You you look at your coffee cup and they see that they throw the cup away to this day. Can't be used. It's had cream in it. We can't have that. Notice how this goes on. You go to all these great lengths, but your inward part is full of greed and wickedness. I've shared this with some of you before. It's the craziest thing. When you're in Israel, if you happen to be there on a Sabbath, that's when sundown on Friday, sundown on Saturday, so you're there on Sabbath. All of the Orthodox Jews, those who practice Judaism, that's Sabbath to them. So you're not allowed to work. And he goes, so you go into a hotel. And what do you find in the hotel? All of the Orthodox Jews have checked into the hotel so that they can have someone else cook for them, so they don't do work. It's nuts. It's crazy. They've got their kids. Their kids are running rampant everywhere, completely out of control. That they are. They they push their way through the lines at every because they can't touch you because you're you're a gentile and you're unclean. So they just kind of put their hands down. They don't want to get their hands dirty because they're going to go eat. We had a group in our group that made the mistake of getting on the Shabbat or the Sabbath day elevator, which stops on every floor. Why? Because to push the button for the ground floor is work. So it goes all the way to the top and it goes all the way. It stops on every single floor. 20 minutes to get down so that you don't work. That's the picture Jesus is giving you here. Your inward parts full of greed and wickedness. You're going to have somebody else do your work. By the way, you weren't supposed to have your manservant, your maidservant, or your beasts work either. Okay? That's what it actually says. So we just pay somebody to do it. Foolish ones! Did not he who made the outside make the inside also? It's like you can hide what's on the inside. Well, look, the outside's clean. It's kind of like we are, it? yeah? I've had people come to church, and they're in the midst of some horrific sin in their life. And they come here, and, hi, brother. Praise God. Thank you, Jesus. Here's my time. Great message, pastor. Then their wife calls me the next day. Their husband calls me the next day. Their friends at school call me. Do you know what's going on? Foolish ones. God sees what's in here. Knows exactly what's going on. Not fooling him. But rather gives alms of such things as you have, and then indeed all things are clean to you. He says, just give God your heart. That free will offering. Say, look, it's yours. But woe to you, Pharisees, for you tithe mint and rue and all manner of herbs, and pass by the justice and the love of God. He says, you've got these little tiny things right. On the outside, you look awesome. You have, and imagine this, now we use a checkbook and we write out our tithe, which means simply a tenth. It's that part that Malachi says we give so that we don't rob God, and so we can receive his blessings, and he keeps the destroyer from our door. It is an act of worship. So the Jews would do this. I got some mint here, and I got some cumin here, and I got a little bit of basil and some garlic. And they would literally put it on the table on a white cloth, generally, and separate it out into tents. And they would make sure that of the herbs, God got 10%. But their hearts? Uh -uh. Unavailable for comment. It's kind of like people in trouble now in politics. I plead the fifth. He says, you ought to have done these things without leaving the others undone. Woe to you Pharisees for you. The lo- you love the best seats in the synagogues and in the greetings in the marketplaces, which would have been by the gate. He says, you want to make sure everybody sees your brand new robe that you got. During those days and times, the Pharisees literally would have kind of a little mini band go before them when they brought their tithe to the temple. They would have little cymbals and clanging cymbals. And they would have a little trumpeter. I'm giving my money. Check this out. Here I go. Look how much it is. And one of the common things was, is they would change, instead of the silver coins or the gold that they might possibly give, they would change everything over to copper or bronze so that it made a bunch of noise when it went in the big kettle that was in front of the temple. It's basically a big horn, and you would throw your coins. And the more noise that it made, wow, check me out, super giver it's all worthless copper and bronze got a little band going on Jeff is just awesome look at the giving he's doing you love the best seats you go out in front of the marketplace look how holy I am woe to you scribes and Pharisees you hypocrites You're like the graves which are not seen. An unmarked grave is what that's saying. You see, a dead person was a dead person, and a dead person was unclean. So if you hated Jews, what you would do is bury your dead near their cities, which is why there's a giant Arab cemetery on the Mount of Olives. They're unclean. And so the Jews couldn't travel through the cemeteries because if they came in contact with the grave, they were unclean. And if they happened to pass by on a holy day, they would have to go a week of uncleanness before they could be pronounced clean. He said, you guys are just like unmarked graves. Walk over them, you're not aware of them. You see, if they didn't know they were there, they weren't unclean. How crazy is that? Are you clean or not clean? Just because you don't know it's there, does it change the fact that guy's dead? You see, they were all about appearance. I don't know that. Isn't that weird how people do, I didn't know that was in the Bible, so I'm okay to fornicate. I didn't know that was in the Bible. That's why I'm in this homosexual relationship. They knew. They just don't want you to know that they knew. But does God know? Of course he does. He's not fooled very sophisticated approach they criticizes manners they criticize his motives and he, he talks to these formal traditionalists he just looks at him and goes this is crazy guys you're so into keeping the law you're so into this fundamental stuff look what he says next the traditionalist he says and the Lord said to me first he's make the outside of the dish clean notice how he says that he says look you guys are all about the outside. You're all about the little tiny things, and God doesn't care about your little tiny pieces of herb. Okay? He doesn't care. I had a guy come to me just panicked one time. He'd gotten a relatively large check back from the IRS, and he was talking about tithing on it. And he says, so how do I give to the Lord? On, And he was serious, deadly serious, and I actually think it was kind of cool. He says, you know, well, I know I'm supposed to give the Lord... A tenth of my first fruits. But this is old money. I paid taxes on this already. I already gave it to him. So I got a tithe on this. I said, Oh, you can keep it. It's all God's anyway. He's going to get it from you sooner or later. And he looked at me like I had a hole in my head. I said, Why are you asking me? It's between you and God. Then I just told him about Ananias and Sapphira. I have no idea how it came out. but (laughs) We're so weird that way. It's like, look, it's all God's. So don't worry about that stuff. Worry about where your heart's at. Notice verse 45 as we wrap this up this morning. And when one of the lawyers answered and said, Teacher, in saying these things you reproach us also. Uh, Duh. Kind of who I was talking to. He said, woe to you, you lawyers, for you load men with burdens hard to bear, and you yourselves do not touch the burdens with one of your fingers. He says, look, (laughs) you guys are just like the Orthodox who check into the hotel to get somebody else to do their work, who secretly put creamer in their coffee and then go dump their dish in there so they can throw the dish away and say, look, I threw my dish away. Aren't I holy? Look how awesome I am. Woe to you. For the tombs of the prophets you built and you killed them. Your fathers killed them. And in fact, you bear witness that you approve the deeds of your fathers. And indeed, they killed them. You build their tombs. And therefore, the wisdom of God says this, I will send them prophets and apostles, and some of them they will kill and persecute. That's exactly what God had done. Amen? Read your Old Testament. Prophet after prophet began with Abel and ended with Zacharias, the active prophets. And everywhere in between, what did God's people do with God's prophets? We don't like what you're saying. If you don't stop saying that, we're going to kill you. And so they kill him. Then they build a beautiful tomb. You can go see David's tomb. I got in trouble at David's tomb. As you can imagine, I got in trouble a lot in Israel. I was always doing something wrong. I actually ask a question. And I said it a little bit louder than you're supposed to. The tomb police came. You can't do that in here. Go away. It's a rock. I think the rock's going to stay there. It's not, ah, sacrilege. And I'm like, you don't even know that he was actually buried here. It has a plaque on the wall that says, we don't know if he was buried here. It's holy. I'm not good with this kind of stuff when I'm actually there. It's it's bad. That the blood of all the prophets that was shed from the foundation of the world may be required of this generation. From the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who perished between the altar and the temple. Actually killed him between the altar and the temple. Isn't that crazy? One of the prophets of God. I say to you, it shall be required of you from this generation. Woe to you, lawyers. For you have taken away the key of knowledge. You did not enter into it yourself. And those who were entering, you hindered. He said the people who actually wanted to know the truth, you tried to push them away by giving them some more burdens that you yourself don't keep. That's what religion does, family of God. That's what religion has always done. Heaps burdens on people that they can't keep and neither can the leadership. Read the history of Hiram Bingham. I I love when when Mormons want to debate with you. Uh, What happened to Joseph Smith? Oh, that's right. He was murdered because he was molesting children. That's a good sign for a prophet. Child molester. Adulterer. Put that on your tombstone. Make a nice tomb for that. Ridden out of town on a rail twice. Jumped out of a burning building to save himself. You see, that's what religion does. Every nook and cranny of Jewish life was like that. He says, You guys are like living in a graveyard. And so he comes along and he finishes this up this morning. He says, woe to you, for you build tombs of the prophets and your fathers. He says, you guys are living in these tombs. He he says, you make all this effort to make sure those things are correct. And he says, what you did is absolutely kill the messenger every single time. So why would I be any different? That's what he's saying. I'm just bringing grace. Verse 53 And as he said these things to them, you can see the blood boiling, because he was attacking their religion. He was attacking their traditions. He was saying, you guys are dead. You paint the outside, but you're still dead. The scribes and the Pharisees began to assail him vehemently and to cross-examine him about many things, lying in wait for him and seeking to catch him in something that he might say so that they might accuse him. You see, that's what people still do. Oh, well, you know there's a contradiction. Anytime somebody says that to you, the burden of proof is not on you, by the way, tell them to go find it for you. You want to fix that argument 100% of the time? Say, go find the supposed contradiction in Scripture and have them bring it back to you. You know what will happen? Well, I know they're there. You know, after all, it was written by misogynistic men a long time ago. That's usually the thing that I get. Bunch of misogynists. crazy it was written and authored by God himself by the Holy Spirit and nobody's ever going to bring you a contradiction because they don't exist people have been trying that argument for a thousand or more years still haven't done it they began to try and entangle him they weren't successful he was perfect And remain so to this day. So no matter how sophisticated the slander gets, I can tell you who's going to win each time. That's our Lord Jesus. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time this morning and pray that you would just take these simple illustrations, these words, Lord, these stories that we can draw as you, Jesus, spoke to this group of very learned people. Lord, you called them on the carpet, on the religion. You let them understand that their traditions could not save them. That it is indeed by grace and through faith that we are saved. And so, Lord, strengthen our faith. Create in us a new heart. Lord, help us to to walk in your ways. We thank you for the wonder of your word. Lord, we pray that you would just help us to be uh, prepared for those who would inquire of us. God, for that wonderful hope that we have that one day, when this earthly life is over, God, that we have the promise of heaven. We bless you. We praise you. We thank you. And God's people all said, Amen.